Welcome, everybody, to the next edition of the American Shoreline Podcast. My name is Peter Ravel. I'm the co-host of this show. And I'm Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. And boy, do we have a lot to get to on today's episode of the American Shoreline Podcast. Peter, we have a really awesome uh, rundown of all of the content that we're going to be covering this week uh, on the podcast network. Uh, and we're going to go over some of our, our top news stories. And this is just a really fun and interesting show. I think, I think you guys are going to love it. I know. As we come to the end of the year, there's it, and as we've gotten deeper and deeper into coastal news today in the American Shoreline Podcast Network, uh, it's great to take a little breather once in a while and uh, let y'all know what we're up to and what's coming up and uh, what we've recently done. So... Uh, before we dive into all of the details, two sponsors we want to thank profusely, uh, people who have uh, taken the leap and, and decided to support Coastal News today in the American Shoreline Podcast Network, TI Coastal Services of Wilmington, North Carolina, a great coastal engineering firm for the southeast coast of the United States, headed by Chris Gibson, an outstanding coastal engineer, uh, I've worked with Chris over the last couple of decades, a real professional, great guy, TI Coastal Services, Wilmington, North Carolina. Find them at TICoastalServices.com. And of course, we're also brought to you by Dune Doctors out of Pensacola, Florida. Frederic Barrasset and her team are some of the finest dune restoration consultants in the business. They service the entire Gulf shoreline from Texas all the way around to Florida. If you have a dune restoration or consultation or permitting need, go to dunedoctors.com and look them up. They are fantastic. They do a great job. Hub vendor for all you bidders out there, Frederic Barrasset, dunedoctors.com. So, Tyler, network news. Uh, let's talk about, there's been some very interesting content up on the website, both on the podcast side, but also on the news side. And uh, I think it'd be great to remind people what uh, what there's available to them. What's available to them and what's what we've got coming out, because uh, we're not resting for the end of the year. We're running, we're charging into 2019, <laughs> Peter. Yeah. Uh, but of course, let's highlight uh, an interview that we dropped Wednesday of last week. Uh, with Ken Graham. He is the director of the National Hurricane Center, which is uh, just a critically important uh, data gathering and hurricane tracking uh, government agency. It's part of NOAA. And Ken came on the program and just brought us up to speed on all the cool stuff that the NHC is doing uh, to improve, to develop new products, to message about how hurricanes are moving and we talked about the cone of probability and all of the issues with it it is a really interesting program yeah uh and if you have not yet had the opportunity to give the ken graham interview a listen go and do it you will not be disappointed yeah he was he was it well it was fabulous and a privilege for us to have the director of the national hurricane center on the american shoreline podcast but uh uh you know, we, we forget how professional our uh, government employees are, the people who do so much for us, and it's always good to acknowledge the hard work that these guys do and the extremely high level of professionalism that is provided by 
not just the National Hurricane Center, but uh, many at NOAA. And uh, Ken, what I thought was interesting was, you know, we talked about the accuracy of their forecasts and storm intensity and all that was wonderful. But the thing he said that struck me, he said, we can have the best forecast possible. We can have the best data and information that we can possibly have. But the trick is, how do we get that out to the public? How do we get them to pay attention? How do we get them to take action? And this whole thing, I would love to have him back on to talk about his sociologist. He said, we're bringing sociologists into the system so we can figure out how to talk to people. Yeah, uh, we will. I mean, I think that one of the things that we have talked about on this program and we actually talked about with Ken is our role, uh, Coastal mm-hmm. News Today and the American Shoreline Podcast Network's role in talking about hurricanes. And we are not uh, going to be the guy out there in the wind. No, no windbreakers. <laughs> no, we're not going to do that. But we, Although it's tempting, you know, you tie yourself to a pole, the, the, the thing, the lashing, it's very horrific. Dan Rather got his start yeah. covering hurricanes. Yeah, know? we could get some of those cool ASPN windbreakers on our microphones. But uh, instead, we're going to provide the year-round coverage into the science research government policies, the coordination between uh, the the Hurricane Center, uh, FEMA, local emergency managers, and policies that are made. um, It's all all interconnected, and our job is to show how these interconnections happen, where do they rub up against each other and create friction, and highlight those areas and try to uh, shine some light on that so we can get better. It's it's le- it's a little less sexy than standing in, on the beach with pounding waves, but how FEMA operates after these storms, the billions of dollars in federal tax revenue and, and state emergency investments that are made, what's going on in mitigation, all of that is the purview of Coastal News today because I think for coastal professionals and coastal stakeholders, this is what's necessary to understand. Uh, and there's plenty of great people who cover the storms, and I'm not not trying to look down on that. But I think there's a deeper, more complicated story that uh, I feel comfortable we could do a good job with it. Well, and and one wrinkle, one fold in our coverage of storms is to keep an eye on them after they've left the spotlight of CNN and the yeah. the New York Times. We're circling back and we're we're following up. And Peter, you. Uh, we actually both uh, sat down with Steve Mercer, but we've done a little bit of a series now on the aftermath of Hurricane Florence. Yeah, I think the, the Hurricane Florence series, which was three podcasts, uh, as you mentioned, Steve Mercer, who is the head of uh, Coastal Transplants, a company in North Carolina, inland from the coast, who's a plant uh, restoration operations, a dune restoration specialist, also another pro. Um, but talking to Steve about how the hurricane went and the flooding in his neighborhood and the loss of food and how FEMA was and the trailers and did it work out. Uh, The Steve Mercer interview was the first in the Florence series. Then we talked to Topsail Commissioner Steve Smith and Topsail Beach was the the landfall point for Hurricane Florence. Basically ground zero. Basically ground zero back uh, that was September 14th. And uh, Steve talked about looking up through the eye of the storm and uh, what happened mm. to the town and how the town has worked with FEMA 
you know, that's the local government perspective. That was on the Local Control podcast. And then Chris Gibson, who's the engineer of record for Topsail Island's three beach towns, uh, North Topsail Beach, Surf City, and Topsail uh, Beach, the town of Topsail Beach. Uh, Chris, what a professional. Now, that one will air soon, I think. We just finished wrapping it up with uh, Chris Gibson and hopefully have his show on soon. Just need to get it edited and published, uh, and you can expect it in the next couple weeks for sure. Um, Really great. You know, it's so interesting to learn from a a kind of a scientific and engineering mind what the impact of the storm was, even below the surface of the water. And um, I won't spoil it because it's really interesting, but that's a little piece of candy to look forward to um, kind of rounding out our Hurricane Florence series. Yeah. And I'm sure we will do more. I, I would like, you know, the, the other huge storm of the season that we spoke to Ken Graham about uh, was, of course, Hurricane Michael, which was just absolutely devastating. But, uh, you know, somehow fitting in a, a – I really would like to do a post-Hurricane Michael series somehow, but, uh, you know, our plate is already so full. But that storm uh, was very different, of course. We've talked a lot about it anyway. The, the post hurricane coverage on Florence. I'm happy, proud of that, and looking forward to doing that in the future. Absolutely. And uh, let's see, Peter, this week, uh, kind of in the vein of uh, our interview with the National Hurricane Center Director, Ken Graham, yeah. we will be having the regional director, director on board uh, the podcast, Michael Salata, uh, is the Gulf of Mexico uh, region director, and... Uh, we're really looking forward to talking yeah, with him. So it. much going on in the in this arena here with uh, wind and oil and gas leases, yeah. uh, the seismic testing authorization, uh, GOMISA funding, which comes out of those leases, uh, offshore sand sourcing for beach renourishment, large-scale beach renourishment in the future when you don't have that mm. convenient channel right next door. Yep. Uh, you need to go offshore, and they handle all of that. They do. The Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, <clears throat> uh, it's BOEM. So for all of you out there in the public, and, and this needs to be part of your day-to-day lexicon. You need to know who BOEM is. You need to be able to say, I know what BOEM does. BOEM is really important, and I think you've touched on it, Tyler. Uh, the regional director for the Gulf of Mexico, Michael Shalata, coming on and later this week is really a, a another important step uh, for the network, but also in terms of what we're trying to do in, in talking to Coastal America. Uh, the Bureau of, uh, of Ocean Energy Management is part of the Department of Interior. They are responsible for the management of all of these submerged lands that the United States has. Um, and those lands, of course, in the Gulf of Mexico, huge source of oil and gas development, all of the environmental issues and the technical issues that go with deep sea drilling in the Gulf. Um, the biggest event, if you're following Coastal News today, if you're a sc- subscriber, uh, you would know this, but become a subscriber to Coastal News today. Damn it, go online and put your email in. It is free. It will keep you up to date. We cover energy closely. But the United States has, has now authorized seismic testing along the entire eastern seaboard of the United States. And Let's just say that is a touchy topic, and on Coastal News Today, there's a series of editorials from local newspapers along the eastern seaboard. It is a tough sell. Uh, These are folks that are not used to the oil and gas industry like we are on the Gulf Coast. Uh, 
We've seen the refineries. We've seen the oil and gas equipment. We've seen it for decades. And we, and we have a relationship with it that is positive. And, but the rest of the United States is new to this. A lot of it is anyway. I shouldn't say the entire rest of the United States, but uh, is new. And on the eastern seaboard, at the state legislative level, at the local community level on the American shoreline, this seismic testing uh, authorization is a matter of great controversy. And because of the environmental impacts, because of the right whale and the gray whale migration, and I mean, there's just a lot there. And, and I think uh, I'm looking forward to talking to uh, Director Shalata about that topic. And on the positive side of, of what uh, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management does is through the Gulf of Mexico Energy Security Act, a federal statute is a revenue, among other things, authorized uh, drilling in the Gulf of Mexico in new areas, but it also has a very significant financial cost-sharing component, which means that every county on the Gulf of Mexico gets a check in the mail every year from the federal government for the royalties, that portion of the royalties from oil and gas, to offset the impacts of having this industry in their neighborhood. Uh, the state of Texas received $40 million in 2018. The maximum allowance for the state is $100 million a year. Through and, and that's relatively small compared to Louisiana, uh, yeah. Alabama. I mean, Mississippi. Yeah. yeah. Those checks are, in other words, it's a significant source of funding for all of the kind of great coastal projects and conservation efforts and preservation of lands and restoration of marshes. I mean, Gomisa is a big deal. So BOEM is not always somebody who think about, boy, that's terrible what they're doing. They're doing a lot of good. Uh, they're the source of sand, as you said, for offshore sand sources along the American shoreline. Uh, so for beach restoration, BOEM is uh, the go-to source if you're out, if you're past three, uh, three marine leagues, uh, typically. You're in federal water, but the, that's uh, that Bohm interview. I think is really going to be interesting, and another example, I think, of the of the kind of quality and programs that you uh, you need to have to understand the American shoreline, and you get them on ASPN and you get them on Coastal News Today. So I'm really happy to. I'm looking forward to talking to Michael Shalata. I am too, Peter, and uh, it's a busy week for us because the Gulf of Mexico Alliance 2018 Coastal Resiliency Team Meeting, yes. the fall meeting, the fall meeting is uh, in, of all places, Austin. And so, of course, uh, as, as that's where Coastal News Today and the American Shoreline Podcast Network are headquartered, Yep. We will be there. They and came to our it's home actually, camp. it could not be a more uh, <clears throat> serendipitous location. Uh, we will be doing a few shows. We hope to do a few shows from this meeting. Yep. And uh, we're going to have on Rhonda Price, who is chairing the meeting. Uh, and she'll be talking all about the, the full slate of talks and presentations that uh, will be given at the, the meeting itself. Um, and I will be, I'm hoping to do, I, I'm pretty sure we're going to make this happen, Peter. I hope so. But I'm hoping to do a Beach Shack podcast. Uh, with Julie Shio Woodard and Alex Carey on this fortified program. It's a certification on uh, both commercial and residential buildings yep. um, that is intended to uh, produce more resilient structures that, that can survive yeah. uh, storms. 
You know, Julie is the president and CEO of what's called Smart Home America. Alex Carey is with the Insurance Institute. And uh, these folks are at the meeting talking about the risk on the shoreline and how development can occur in a way that is less, uh, you know, more resilient to survive these damn storms. That's basically what it's about. And another example of the, these are the professional folks that are trying to develop programs to respond to this very significant risk of sea level rise uh, and storm damage along the shoreline. I think on the beach shack, finding out what's happening in coastal building standards and and certification, sort of like lead certification for energy efficiency, this new fortified certification. Right. There's a lot. I think that's a great beach shack show. I really hope you get them on, Tyler. I'm hoping to. Uh, so GOMA, the Gulf of Mexico Alliance, just a quick intro. This is an an organization that is made up of representatives of the Gulf states. So uh, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Texas, Florida, their governor appointed. And the purpose of this organization is kind of to coordinate the long-term investments that the states can do together to improve the economy and the environment of the Gulf of Mexico. It's an important group. Another one of these institutions that you probably never heard of but has a lot of horsepower and makes a big difference in the long term on the American shoreline, at least the Gulf Coast part of it. So I'm looking forward to going over to the GOMA team, the fall team meeting, the coastal resiliency team meeting, and finding out a little more about what these guys do and uh, talking to Rhonda Price. And we'll see, you know, maybe we'll have a GOMA roundtable with uh, participants. We might. We'll see if we can pull that off, but uh, at least a show or two. I, We will be bringing the... Uh, this fall meeting from Goma to uh, the American Shoreline Podcast Network listeners, and uh, it'll be interesting. But of course, we have some other stuff going on too, Peter. Uh, it's it's a busy week, busy few weeks. We're heading into the holidays. We're charging forward <laughs> yeah. here to yeah. to make the ending of twenty eighteen as as solid as we can on the American yeah. Shoreline Podcast Network. So I'm going to be heading out to California a little early this year uh, to be recording some shows. Uh, from the western, the west coast of the United States, and uh, I've got some really interesting uh, folks lined up. I won't spoil them all quite yet, but um, there's a really interesting retreat project in Ventura that I'm hoping to investigate further. Yeah, um, and that's a complicated project that deals with the entire watershed of the Ventura River, uh, an old defunct dam that uh, really has no business being there. But yeah, the uh, Matillaha. Nobody, we can't afford to take it down. Um, it's actually the dam. Uh, is that you, right? Matillaha, is that the that, one? That's correct. That's okay. the Matillaha <clears throat> dam, and uh, it's featured in that film, uh, Dam Nation, oh, which yeah. was a documentary that Patagonia uh, helped produce uh, a number of years ago now, but it kind of tells the story of of uh, these old dams that really don't serve a, a, a discrete purpose anymore. They're just right. kind of old pieces of infrastructure. That are uh, you know made out of really strong materials, and they need to be uh, taken down. And there's all sorts of impact uh, impacts that that creates, and uh, it's a complicated. It uh, is, and it's project, and it's tied to the coast because the sediment that that river provided was, uh, of course, came to the Pacific Coast in Ventura County. Was partly how the shoreline reached a certain equilibrium, and the retreat topic that's underneath all of this. Um, of course, 
is one of the touchiest topics on the American shoreline. Can and should we pick things up and move them off the shoreline? This little story about the Matillaha Dam and Ventura County and the work that's being done in that community is an interesting story and I think worthy. I'm so glad you're going to be able to do it face-to-face instead of over the phone. Well, and, and it really helps to, of course, be there and you know look at what's happening. It's, it's also a story of jurisdiction. You've got state-owned lands. You've got mm-hmm. um, city park space. They've invested a bunch of money. I mean, it, 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 the politics and yeah. um, jurisdictional you know, infighting among government groups, yeah. levels of government is very interesting as well. So uh, we're going to bring that story and, and hopefully I'll get a couple more. Now, before we leave California, because I have a, I have a, a hope and a dream. I have a dream about this California trip. And um, I'm hoping, I don't know if this can happen, but I'm hoping you can get with the Channel Islands National Park superintendent or their some of their biologists and take a trip out to the Channel Islands National Park with them and do a show with the Channel Islands National Park people. Um, we had a chance to visit there and not a lot of Americans do, but boy, th- these are the treasures of the American shoreline. And that one, I, I would love to listen to a show talking to the professionals who manage those islands and what goes on out there, the biology, the, all of the history it's just would be such a great show. And it's a, <clears throat> the, the Channel Islands National Park, <clears throat> like Padre Island National Seashore and our other national seashores, is a uh, protected coastal area. And in the case of the Channel Islands National Park, it exhibits the same coastal geology uh, as the mainland of California. And it, of course you don't have construction right up against the water. So mm, it, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a place where you can study and learn and just uh, to be on a piece of shoreline yeah, and natural. on a broad, and, and, you know, the case of Santa Cruz Island, it's, it's not a small island. It's about mm. the size of Manhattan. So to, to be on that island and to see it function as an environmental, geological, coastal space, yeah, and then look across the channel and see massive uh, container ships sailing into the port of Los Angeles. And you can look across into Ventura County and see literally millions of people. Uh, It, it really draws stark contrast to the way that we manage our space and the draw that the American shoreline has for people. Yeah. And it, it, and it highlights and illuminates and illustrates uh, exactly what I think coastal news today is about, which is about accepting the, not accepting in the sense of, but recognizing the spectrum of uses that we make of the coast, or the shipping, the development, the, the, all of this stuff, the environmental sensitivities, the recreational part. I mean, all of this is happening in a little geographic area. And it's a, another great example of what we're trying to do on the network, which is to really break out of these silos and look at the damn big picture. Um, so I think that would be a really super trip and i hope it works out and uh so we'll look forward to that well and i i look forward to, we'll be doing a, a show up uh, we'll be doing a, a an asp show from uh i'll be out there and i'll, I'll give an update to everybody uh, once i'm out there and, and it's gonna be great i'm yeah. really looking forward to it another one i'm looking for end of the year now look mm-hmm. we started the podcast network in september we did four shows in september i think we've done about 35 so far so let's just say we're early in the process however 
It is traditional, and damn it, I think it's quite appropriate. <laughs> We're going to do an ASPN Best of the Year show that we'll release. That'll be clips of the of the best interviews that we've done on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. And uh, we've got a lot of hosts out there. I think Jenna Valenta has done some really great work this year. Uh, Dan Martin did a really good show and looking more from Dan, for more from Dan. And uh, I still think that... Um, this, the Next Well podcast with Rob Nixon and his interview of Sean Thompson, the uh, World Surfing Championship, but the spokesperson for the ocean is really a deeply interesting interview. And I just I, I think we, we have enough. We should do it best of the year. And I'm hope I'm looking forward to Tyler when you pull that together. When we <laughs> launched Coastal News Today and ASPN, we really felt like we were working without a net a little bit, but well, we, we just were. threw ourselves, we were, <laughs> we threw ourselves at it. And, uh, I'm really proud of the work that our hosts have done and that we have done. Um, we've had some incredible interviews and covered some fascinating subjects that were kind of siloed off. I mean, that's, that's where mm -hmm. we started, you know, uh, it, it's very possible if you were a coastal engineer, you were not paying attention to the Supreme Court decision. Yeah. Um, on well, beach access. On beach access out in California. Well, we covered that. And I'll tell you what, it's important. It is. Yeah. It's huge to the economy. And, uh, you know, that was one of Rob Nixon's shows where he had on the, the lead attorney and the chapter president for Surfrider who spearheaded that lawsuit all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, this is the one, what was that? was in Mendocino County, was it? No, where was it? It was in Half Moon Bay. Uh, yeah, it was just south of Half Moon Bay. I don't, south I, Half Moon Bay. I don't recall <clears throat> the specific county, but uh, the, the point is we, we were highlighting a uh, private property versus public property dispute on the shoreline. Yeah. Now, while that case was California-specific, yeah. the precedent, and well, I guess it didn't set precedent because the court just declined to hear it. The, yeah, the Supreme it Court did not deny the petition for cert, but it's meaningful. Yeah. It's legally it's meaningful. meaningful. And uh -huh. these disputes are happening in every state of yeah. the shoreline, and they're happening on rivers. They're happening everywhere. Yeah, and uh, so we have to cover it. We it, it's truly important. Yeah, if you work, if you live on the American shoreline keeping track, track and tabs on uh, this issue broadly is well worth your time. And, and I'm right. proud of the work we did on that. There are many other issues. We talked about a hurricane coverage earlier, um, bringing in uh, government uh, agency heads and directors to talk about the work that they're doing. Mm -hmm. Hugely important. We're raising awareness about the killer work that they do. We're going to be up, we're going to in, increase our coverage in the science realm uh, in 2019. But uh, in the meantime, we've had some really great uh, people, and we had Michael Poff on to introduce his program. So I'm really proud of the work yeah. we did. We're going to have a nice little <clears throat> recap that we're going to do for uh, New Year's, and it's something to look forward to coming up. It is, and I, I'm glad you mentioned Michael Poff. Uh, Michael Poff is going to be hosting the podcast for Building Beaches Better, our coastal engineering show, and we are on the we are on the lookout all of the time for talented people who can speak about very technical and specific issues along the American shoreline because we're trying to bring together this spectrum of voices, and Michael Poff's show is going to be critical. 
Another show which is coming your way is Robert Jones's next uh, is the Catch Curve podcast, uh, which is on federal fisheries policy. And Robert is completely uh, just up to his neck in that issue, knows a lot about it. It's going to be really great to t- talk to him. And a few other shows that we're, we're, uh, uh, you may have heard about. You, 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 I hope you listened to our interview with uh, Howard Marlowe and Dan Genofoli from Washington, D.C. They're going to be uh, hosting the Waterlog podcast starting in January. This is the Federal Water Resources Policy Show from two guys that are another couple of guys who know their way around this issue inside out. That's going to be a great show. And <clears throat> the latest addition to the network, man, you just feel lucky sometimes. I, I, I said Christmas came early for me this year. Over the weekend, I had a chance to talk to Bob Frump, who is going to be hosting our new show on maritime issues, shipping ports and waterways. And uh, Bob Frump, my gosh, what a great guy. And, uh, a, well... Well, let's just say let's, this. Let's introduce people to Bob Let, Frump a little bit. Well, before we get into Bob, and Bob is, we are just so thrilled to be adding Bob's voice to the network. Yeah. But uh, if you've been on CoastalNewsToday.com, which I hope everyone has, uh, we have a waterways section. Mm-hmm. And from the, we there, it would be inconceivable that we could cover the American shoreline and not cover yeah. the important role that shipping, the blue economy, ports refineries, all of this industrial Mm -hmm. uh, stuff, commerce, and an industry that exists out of these major ports. Yeah. Uh, It's a huge economic driver for the nation. Yeah. It's also a, these are massive installments on the shoreline that produce, in some cases, beneficial use of dredge material for neighboring shorelines. They can also produce pollution. They can produce... Uh, hurricane vulnerability in the case of Galveston and the, mm-hmm. the channel there. Um, so we have to cover these guys. But yeah. the, the challenge, of course, is as we build out this network, who who do we find? Well, we found <laughs> we found Robert R. Frump. Yes. Uh, Bob Frump, Robert Frump, nationally recognized journalist, award-winning journalist, uh, long-time uh, journalist with the Philadelphia Inquirer covering maritime and port issues for them. He was part of a Pulitzer Prize-winning team of journalists there. Um, and what I think is also great, he was the managing editor of the Journal of Commerce, the industry magazine on short shipping, ports, and waterways. He comes from uh, a, a career in shipping in ports and waterway coverage he's a real pro he's also an amazing author and has written some great books that uh so he's let me just mention a couple of bob's books that are out and available on amazon.com like everything is available on i think my mother can no (laughs) (laughs) that's horrible i don't mean that in that way um and uh bob's most recent book uh is called The Captains of Thor, What Really Caused the Loss of the SS El Faro. Uh, and this was a ship, Tyler, that was uh, lost in, in Hurricane Joaquin in 20, was it 14? 15, I believe. 2015. 33 crew members went down with that ship. I think about 22 of them were American crew members. 
But the story of the SSL Pharaoh and the loss of that ship, and some of you have probably heard about this, of course, it was a very, very big deal when this tanker, this was a, this was a big tanker that sank uh, in, what, in the Caribbean basin, I think it was, uh, in 2015. But, you know, Tyler, you've done some research on this. Tell, tell, some, tell us a little bit about this ship. Well, I mean, it's a chilling story. It's, it's, <clears throat> it's the story of a uh, kind of an old and aging uh, container ship that was uh, went out to sea with the storm. You know, they knew the storm was out there. They knew it was tracking in their area. Um, the crew had just, you know, it's kind of, it's legendary. The, mm-hmm. the premonitions of a seaman before a voyage <laughs> yeah. are not to be trifled with. Um, but uh, uh, they, they, the captain decided to go anyway. Um, the, there's actual audio transcripts from, the, from distress calls that the captain was making to the mainland. And they are just bone chilling. I mean, at, yeah. you can read as the captain and the, the officers on the bridge are realizing that the ship is going down. They lose propulsion, so they're just adrift in 30-foot mm. seas. The ship is listing. They can't tell if it's listing because of just wind right. blowing on it or if, it's a, uh, if they're taking on water. It turns out both. Yeah. And uh, very quickly, in, in the course of this transcript from like 7.50 a.m., it starts at like 6.30 a.m., then you see 7.50 a.m., we're not going to abandon ship. And by uh, not long after that, the captain's giving the order to, to get on the rafts, and um, all, all souls on board perished. Yeah, never found, actually. And uh, They recovered one body. Did they recover one body? And, and, and I only say this because I think it gives you a sense of who Bob Frump is. The other books that I'd like to mention, Two Tankers, two tankers Down. He uh, wrote a book, The Greatest Small Boat Rescue in U.S. Coast Guard History. Another book he wrote, Until the Sea Shall Free Them, Life, Death, and the Survival and Survival in the Merchant Marine. Bob comes from a deep background in shipping and ports and waterways, and as the managing editor of the Journal of Commerce, been on a Pulitzer Prize winning team. And I am just can't wait to hear what he does. And um, it's such, as you say, it is such a powerful economic force on the American shoreline in every major bay and estuary in America, whether it's from Puget Sound to the San Francisco to Long Beach to L.A., come around into the Gulf, start in Beaumont, go up to Corpus Christi, to Freeport, to Galveston, over to Beaumont, Mobile, you know, Port of New Orleans, all along the Gulf Coast, into Florida, the Port of Tampa, Miami, up the eastern seaboard. I mean, and, and it has such a footprint, both in terms of its economic importance and value on the American shoreline to the environmental implications of what is done in ports and waterways. And we haven't even mentioned the inland waterway systems or the, you know, the Atlantic intercoastal waterway or the Gulf intercoastal waterway. I just, I, you know, I wish I, in my career, I've been a little distant from this topic <laughs> other than watching and being fascinated by huge ships going up the channels. Um, we need to understand this industry and, and the, and what is so powerful and good about it and what the implications are for it and how it's managed. And Bob Frump, man, you couldn't have a better guide. Uh, thank you, uh, Bob, for agreeing to host the shipping podcast. And I told Bob, whatever you want to name it is fine with me. So I don't even know what it's called yet. No, but it's, it's, uh, we're going to be adding some really great content in 2019. And uh, 
you know, we're going to be saying this a lot to you guys from now till the end of the year, but thank you to all of our listeners and all of our subscribers. Um, getting this thing off the ground has been totally a thrill and, and really fun. And, um, we we owe you we need somebody to talk to so thank you guys for <laughs> for listening and and on our end we're going to do our part to continue to improve our our quality and quantity and broaden the discussion into realms that are just not a part of what mm-hmm. we hear and they're important and and we're going to be we're going to be making sure that those stories are told you know and i, I mean the underlying theory of this is that even though you might be a real estate professional on the American shoreline and your job is to find the right development or to sell houses or whatnot, having a broader understanding of what's going on on the American shoreline, we believe, is essential to being great at your job because how the ports are managed, how that sediment is managed, affects the condition of the shoreline, its erosion rate, it affects the tax base, it affects the tourism economy, it is un inextricably linked together. Uh, We think if you're in the port and waterways business, you need to understand what the environmental community is thinking about and what they care about along the American shoreline. That's Jenna Valente's Sea Change podcast. Um, You need to know a little bit about these recreational interests. Uh, It's not just about surfing. When Rob Nixon's Nextwell podcast uh, tackles an issue, they're talking about a driver of the economy of communities and beach towns and how access is handled is an economic issue in addition to a personal liberty issue and it's a constitutional issue and the protection of private property rights and all of this stuff i mean it is it what we're what we i mean the theory of this whole thing tyler and we're trying to set figure out what the hell we're doing it really is that we cannot stay in any kind of silo on the american shoreline and you've got to open your eyes and look across the fence and take the fences down to be good at what you're doing. Yeah. Just as you cannot silo the, the sea, you can't silo the coastal issues that that uh, come about from it. Yeah. So, uh, well, let's, let's talk about some things that are on Coastal News today now. And, uh, you know, Coastal News Today comes out every day. Uh, if you subscribe to it on CoastalNewsToday.com, you will get an daily email blast at 7 a.m. I'm thinking of moving it to 6.30 a.m. for those early risers. Uh, that that introduces you to a spectrum of news from around the American shoreline and actually around the world. We've got an international coverage that we try to touch on. Mm-hmm. But Coastal News Today is really the foundation of the American Shoreline Podcast Network. They're connected together. Um, and I thought it would be good to, to knock around a few things uh, uh, that are on the that are on the damn that are on the platform today. Yeah, and uh, we've we've put three uh, hot topic stories down here to to quickly run over. And uh, the first one, Peter, is this uh, Noah Nifwif almost thirty million dollars uh, in funding here for the National Coastal Resilience Fund. This has been granted out. Yes. And uh, this has been getting a lot of clicks on our website. So yeah, number one show, number one article on the on Coastal News today. Uh, you know, we try to track federal spending. That's why we have the Waterlog podcast and why Derek Brockbank's show, The Capital Beach, exists because out of the federal government, out of D.C., comes millions and millions of dollars to the American shoreline. This is simply the story of a latest 
program investment made. It's called the National Coastal Resiliency Fund. NOAA and the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation announced their 2018, I guess, or 20, is it, they call it 2018 or do they call it 2019 awards? You know, that's a good question. I'm going to have to quickly look that up. You um, can find it on Coastal News. <laughs> that's but, right. Um, it, what they did was, th- these are investments in, I believe, 22 states, uh, coastal areas around the country where they are investing in attempt to restore and protect uh, coastal habitat and to try to increase the level of resiliency along the American shoreline. For local governments out there, for grant writers out there, you've got to keep track of these complicated federal programs. There are a bunch of them. Mm-hmm. If you're trying to support your community or trying to advance resiliency in your town, Knowing what's happening in the NOAA, NIFWF, National Coastal Resiliency Fund is important for everybody on the Gulf Coast. You've got to keep your head up and look at the Restore Act programs and the hundreds of millions of dollars that are funding that are coming out of the BP oil spill, in addition to the GOMESA accounts that are coming off of the oil and gas leases in the Gulf of Mexico. I mean, there's just a lot of things to keep track of. Right. And then throw in the state coastal programs, like the Coastal right. Management Program grants and KEPRA. Right. It's just a man. So we try to cover that on Coastal News Today. And the story today is about who won the prizes in the uh, National Coastal Resiliency Funding uh, competition. And uh, it's a great read. And it'll give you some ideas as a project developer or project manager or a city or council member what your town or county or state can do. That's right. And uh, this particular fund had three uh, primary aims, uh, and those were to benefit coastal communities communities by reducing the impact of coastal flooding and associated threats to property and key assets such as hospitals and emergency routes, hmm. benefit coastal communities by improving water quality and recreational opportunities, and the third was to benefit fish and wildlife by enhancing yeah. the ecological integrity and functionality of coastal and inland ecosystems. Yeah. So, you know, when we see a grant program like this come out and you see these kind of broad pillars, Peter, in your experience working in the grant world, uh, what advice would you give, uh, you know, coastal (laughs) stakeholders, uh, foundations that are interested in going out and getting that money? How how do you actually carve out a winning uh, concept or proposal? Man, we had to do a show on that. Uh, coastal grant writing because totally. Tyler and I've written a lot of coastal grants and uh, and the restore program in Texas I think we wrote more than any other uh, entity uh, six some were funded uh, I think highly scored I think we did did okay but when you're trying to look at these federal programs and um, obviously paying attention to those program priorities that you just outlined and thinking about your Uh, objectives and your goals in a way that is consistent with what the federal funders are trying to do. They have some specific things they're trying to do that typically are going to be based on legislative federal law, if not agency guidance. And when you think about, you know, coastal restoration or habitat improvements in a resiliency context, what we're talking about is big, healthy marshes protect shorelines and protect property. That's the link between environmental health and economic health and conceiving of projects in those terms, uh, living shoreline projects that are, which is a very popular thing now in the ASBPA universe, in the professional world, uh, using oyster reefs and marshes and mangroves and other living shoreline, uh, you know, 
habitats to provide benefits to us as human beings in the terms of protection. But I just think that uh, it's part of the thing you can count on from Coastal News today is that coverage of these federal funding streams and, uh, you know. Well, it, one of the, I mean, so it's it's important to note that the National Coastal Resiliency Fund, which is what this is a part yes. of, is in its first year it, this year. So this is a brand new thing. Hmm. Um, that being said, uh, that's why we need to, one of the most important tools when you're going after grant funding is to look at the history of the program and, oh, yeah. and look and see what else, what, what else has been funded through this thing. Right. Um, you know, these programs are large and uh, they require a, a staff to implement. And uh, if you, you, and call them up and talk to them. They have their <laughs> well, people there. There's that people never, there. That never is a bad idea. <laughs> it's I'm, never I'm a, a huge believer yeah. in calling the staff of these agencies, whether state or federal, and talking about what they care about and seeing if what they care about is something that you care about. And that sort of overlap is the key uh, in developing good proposals. Yeah, and I think you're right. Looking at the history of the funding decisions tells you a lot about how they interpret and understand the program funding rules. And like we say, this is the first stack of projects coming out of the National Coastal Resiliency Fund from NOAA and NIFWF. And, you know, go to the site, take a look at it as you're planning next year for projects at the local level. Coastal News Day can be helpful to you. And and we'll do our part. And uh, we might go ahead and reach out and have uh, some of it. the people from this particular, from the coastal resiliency grant fu uh, fund on. That would be a super idea. Um, because I'm no, the, the data is in there. Are, <laughs> yeah. Our, our readers want to learn talk more. now. Yeah. <laughs> they won't talk to us while they're deciding who gets the money. But now that they've decided who gets the money, we could ask them about why did this particular project appeal to you? Absolutely. And that's very insightful. And I think it's consistent with what they want to do. They want to fund certain things. And the more you know, the better you are. And that would be, I'd love to do that show. Well, we should uh, slate it. That'll be some more great 2019 content that you right. can anticipate coming down the pipe. That's a good idea. That let's, is a really uh, good idea. Peter, let's talk. This is, this is a story, a top story. Uh, both of these stories are top stories right now on the site. So mm -hmm. um, this podcast is coming out on Monday the 10th. Get on Coast News Today and read these stories. But this is our top story right now, the Russian Arctic Sea Route. It has, yeah. has availed itself to... Yes. Uh, to us, what what is going on here, Peter? Well, you know, over the last month, uh, I've been paying attention and 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 adding to Coastal News today stories about uh, the Arctic area and about shipping in particular, and about access to fishing and resources in the Arctic. And uh, you know, the the underlying issue here is that the climate is changing, and the amount of sea ice is diminishing, and resources that have previously been unavailable are suddenly becoming available. And for those of you in the coastal business and coastal professionals and stakeholders around the country, this is a thing to keep an eye on because the international organizations are starting to take shape in terms of who's going to control what resources in the Arctic, what are the shipping lanes going to be, Norway, the United States, Canada, Russia, uh, Finland and Norway, that the the Arctic countries are there's a lot happening. And let's say the competition is intense. It is distant from all of us. It is in the future somewhere. You kind of know it matters, but you don't have time to deal with it. 
it's great to keep an eye on it. It's fascinating to read because we're talking about uh, international institutional management of a shared resource, and it's you know, it's it's starting to pop. There was a a, a ship that uh, transited through the Arctic last year. It had to have an icebreaker escort, but the shipping companies are starting to practice. They're getting ready for these northern transit routes. The Russians are particularly aggressive here. Uh, Vladimir Putin is setting up a series of stations uh, along the Arctic for transit. The, ca- the Canadians in the United States are investing in the radar systems on the far northern part of Canada. There was a great story in Coastal News today about this Raytheon Corporation uh, uh, radar installations. I think, in other words, things are starting to change in the Arctic, and this Russian story gives you a feeling about how important this is Uh the Russian government is quite open that this is about oil and gas resources and fishery resources and transit and trade power. And uh, so I, I think, you know, for me, I, I, you know, I don't really know. I've never been there. Let's just say there's no personal connection here, but, but I'm fascinated by how are we going to manage this shared resources at the top of the world as the ice starts to melt and the gold rush begins this is going to be you know we go through this historically uh when the new territory opens up boy we'd get feisty oklahoma and then you know the sooners and the 49ers in america and all these times when you see these new resources suddenly available the scramble gets intense yeah and it is a gold rush um Mm -hmm. the the amount of money and economic activity that opening up uh Sea areas that were once covered in ice and are now accessible to modern uh, industrial ships for extraction, for shipping mm-hmm. routes, right. for fisheries will be absolutely uh, exploited and there will be great interest in it. And it's an interesting side of climate change and of uh, in our next story is actually mm-hmm. related to this. Um, yeah. And th- because... The cli- climate change is not just sudden doom, people. It's change. And uh, one of the great challenges here is regulation. Yeah. And in an international space, just multiply it by 10. Right. Um, the, the jurisdictional uh, oversight here is, I don't even know what. I mean, for one, you're, you could be dealing with international waters. Yeah, Obviously, there's, there can be treaties and, and yeah. agreements brokered out to... Um, help manage these spaces. Yeah, but we're talking about, and and it's harder to manage these spaces when they when they too are changing. I mean, our next story we're going to talk a bit, little bit about mm-hmm. um, some of the coastal fisheries here in Texas. Yeah, and how they're changing. But you can imagine that the same thing is happening up there. As the water's getting warmer, the same critters, the same fish are not right. uh, in those waters, and there's going to be new force, new interest in fishing, whatever the hell is there. Yeah, and. Uh, so the my point is is that we we have to uh keep a really close eye on this. There's so much to be learned here. Yeah. It's also just a fact. I mean it's it's really interesting to see how uh human instinct wants to treat this opportunity. Well, we we scramble and uh the environmental community and the advocates for uh, protection are going to have to be on their toes as these industries evolve and develop into these new regions. Uh, a couple of stories on this topic that jumped out at me uh, over the last month on Coastal News Today was 
uh, a story about the early attempts to have offshore oil drilling in the Beaufort Sea uh, north of Alaska. And the technology has been dependent on sea ice. The drilling rigs sit on uh, permanent sea ice and support those rigs. There have been leases issued. Uh, I believe Shell Oil is the first to go out in, uh, in the northern Arctic waters uh, outside of Alaska. And they've had to delay and rethink the plan because the ice isn't there to support the rig. That's an interesting <laughs> irony of fossil fuel development coupled with climate change, coupled with interference with the industry of oil and gas development. Being, you know, and that's just one example. The other thing, and this goes back to the Bureau of Offshore Energy, Ocean Energy Management, the interview I hope we're doing later this week, is the exploration opportunities in the Arctic waters around Alaska. Uh, they've opened it to seismic. There's going to be more development up there. The United States is staking its claims in the Arctic waters. Um, it's going to be a fierce competition, and it's... Uh, it's worth watching, and we'll try to track that as a major threat on coastal news today in our energy coverage. Yeah, and this is why we need that international piece here, because yeah. uh, this, you know, we, we, there are many stories that we encounter that, um, you know, originally we didn't have it. We should point, we did not have, we had a coastwide uh, yeah. regional tag, and uh, Peter added the uh, international, just, it was, it was unavoidable. We, yeah. We are, we have to talk about and provide a space for some of these important stories that are, I think, going to be a catalyst for uh, policy changes here domestically. So we just, we have to, we have yeah. to cover it. Our audience will want to know what's going on. Mm -hmm. You can't cover shipping and what shipping and trade are fundamentally international in nature. Uh, you have to talk about what's going on around the world and shipping forces you into an international perspective. Oil and gas and energy is a clearly international topic. Uh, the other one, which I don't know how this fits into the coastal news today because it's uh, it this is a pelagic issue this is the open ocean uh new exploitation of manganese nodules and manganese crust out in the middle of the uh, out in the middle of the pacific and all around the world and there's been a couple of stories on coastal news today about uh the deep sea mineral mining there are leases in place in the uh indo-pacific region already there are commercial operators the equipment there's pictures of what is it going to look like to have a bulldozer on the bottom of the ocean and how are they going to harvest this stuff and bring it up and all of that stuff i shouldn't say harvest is not the word it's uh uh but it, that's massive and at the same time and the thing i'm keeping my eye on is what NOAA is doing in its deep water research program which is out in the pacific and all around the world the united states has got submarines and biologists and people looking at these uh subsurface areas and part of that is about what needs to be protected where are these resources uh, concentrated what are the economically exploitable areas who else is putting leases together in the international waters. And there's, again, this is another thing where the whole consortium of international management of these resources is starting to take shape through the United Nations. And we've posted a couple stories about it. And it's another thing where you think, gee whiz, I'm going to work at the Port of Houston today. Do I really care what's going on in the middle of the Pacific Ocean? I said, you know, 
maybe it's not the thing you spend eight hours on, but knowing that those resources are there and the economic horsepower that's going to be applied to them, it's going to affect the port's operations over time. I mean, maybe you become a, uh, you know, a shipping port for this stuff. But I think it's useful to take that expansive view and to keep an eye on the fascinating, what I think is fascinating and really, really interesting uh, questions that come up with international management of resources. It's just like, why not look at it? It's, I think it's, I think it blows me away that we're going to be harvesting manganese and silver and, and, uh, you know, minerals off the bottom of the ocean. And it's already starting. It's already starting to happen. Yeah. It almost seems like science fiction, but it, we're there. And, uh, in our conversation with Dan Martin, he was talking about, uh, in the case of like, you know, this is tangentially related, but he mm-hmm. was talking about how, you know, certain uh, like hotels and resorts are actually going to be moving offshore. Yeah. And they will be floating or, you know, some sort of kind of barge type of situation. Yeah. Um, offshore. Yeah. And it's we are we are doing that now. We are we, we are, are looking at uh, finding new ways and new economic opportunities uh in and on the ocean and it's 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 obviously it's totally connected to the american shoreline and to what we cover um and we will be we will be giving it some time for sure yeah i think you know dan martin who is hosting the next gen waterfronts podcast uh a great economist chicago very experienced in coastal development planning and economics and feasibility and all that stuff and uh, what i love about dan is he keeps an eye on long-term trends like this. And he was talking about there's upland development, there's nearshore development, and then there's what's going to be the next big horizon is what's immediately offshore and people finding the economic advantages in being near the shore but not on the shore. And, you know, go to Dubai, pull up Google Earth and look at the damn palm tree. I mean, they are creating islands, massive development in the uh Arabian Gulf or the Red Sea, whatever you want to call it, but they, uh, uh, they, they're starting to go offshore. You see it in the Caribbean. You see lots of tourist developments where they're putting it over water. Who owns the water? What are the standards? How do you control that? How much density should you allow? All of these land use planning concepts, which haven't been developed and applied in, in nearshore waters, I think we're going there. We're going there. And, you know, God, I don't know what to say. I'm hoping, I'm looking forward to Dan keeping an eye on that and talking about that. Me too. Me too. <laughs> uh, I want to move, let's move on, Peter. Yeah, let's, let's move Let's on. move on to uh, this, uh, our third story. Um, and this is a, another really interesting one that has to do with uh, warming waters and uh, the, the fishery actually changing. So, mm-hmm. uh the the headline of the of the title is warmer winters trigger changes in Texas bays. Yeah. Uh and this was actually out of the Houston Chronicle. And before we get into the full story, mm-hmm. um uh the author Shannon Tompkins uh just was inducted into the Freshwater uh Fishing Hall of Fame and um we're going to play a little snippet from the uh, yeah. the here in Texas, the uh, Texas Parks and Wildlife has a weekly 
uh, television program that they put out on PBS. Yep. And they did a, a nice recognition. This came out yesterday. They did a really nice recognition of, of Shannon. Yeah. Um, and so... Before we... De- yeah, so go Shannon, ahead. Shannon Tompkins, outdoor writer for the Houston Chronicle, this piece that he wrote that came out yesterday about what's happening along the Texas coast in terms of the environmental changes and the and the habitat transformations is absolutely a great piece of writing. Uh, and Shannon, I thank you for doing the work and uh, congratulations on the award. But we wanted to talk in depth about this story. And I think Tyler, what I like is uh, uh, Shannon was recently on the PBS series, uh, Texas Parks and Wildlife Television series. And I think we want to play a clip for y'all. It's this is about this is fewer than five minutes, but meet Shannon Tompkins because we're going to talk about what he wrote about, and uh, it is a huge story, I think. And this is another one that's going to have to be tracked for years because the transformations and anyway. Yeah, well, there's two stories. Shannon. There's two stories here. <laughs> there's the story that Shannon wrote, yeah. which is exquisite. Yeah, and then there's the story of the importance of the outdoor writer. And we're going to get to both of those. But first, let's let's Let's, listen to this clip. Let's listen to Shannon. You know, I was lucky. I grew up in a family that loved to fish. Memories I have is of me and my brother fishing in farm ponds in East Texas. It's just always been a part of my life. This is the same country my great, great, great grandfather saw. I'm looking at the same water, catching the same fish that he caught. I write about issues related to fisheries, water, environment, because without without a healthy environment, we don't have fish. And so when people don't care about something, they don't feel any connection to. If they don't know about this place, they don't know what's at stake. They don't care that they've lost it. That's really been my goal, is to let folks know what's going on out there. They talked about the, the recipe for journalism or the formula being who, what, when, where, and why. Well, Shannon is absolutely solid on the who, what, when, and where, for sure. But it's the why that really sets him apart. He is so interested in the resource. Chan is one of us. He he goes out and he does it. He goes out and he hunts and he fishes. And he enjoys the resource. And because of that, that keeps him in touch with his readership. He brings those stories every week to literally millions of readers who are able to read through his articles what's going on on our lakes and rivers and streams and bays and estuaries. He's an ecologist, he's a conservationist, and he cares about everything beyond just what we typically think about on the surface. His intent is to cover the story, but as a conservationist and somebody that believes in the freshwater streams and rivers and lakes of Texas, he's a huge advocate. Second Commissioner Warren, all in favor? Very no opposition, the motion carries, and I thank you, sir, very much. We appreciate you express your views on behalf of CCA, which brings us to- He is so involved he goes to commission meetings. He carries those things that affect the anglers. I probably attended in this job 50, 51 commission meetings. 
and I bet I can count on one hand the number of meetings that Shannon has missed. He's an active listener, and Shannon takes the time to learn those issues from A to Z. That was Carter Smith. That's the way you learn. That's the way you find out what the issues are. That's where you meet both sides of, of issues in a lot of cases. You can't cover issues unless you understand them. You can't just parachute in. The thing that is just almost an oxymoron is he is so humble. Well, I promise you, he doesn't think he deserves this award. And I'll be one of the first ones to tell you that he absolutely deserves this award. And his humility is part of what makes him such an outstanding writer. He brings a very thoughtful, objective voice of fish and wildlife management or conservation and outdoor recreation in Texas. And Shannon Tompkins is there to tell that story. I'm not going to write about, you know, the difference between braid and monofilament or how to tie a different knot or which baits are best. There are a lot of people who cover that a whole lot more than me. If they read something I write that, that makes them remember a feeling, if it makes them wish they were fishing, I want them to care. I guess I just want them to care as much as I did. All right, that was a, a little excerpt there from the Texas Parks and Wildlife uh, television show. Uh, a little homage to uh, Shannon Tompkins' work on uh, as an outdoor writer. And, <clears throat> of course, we're going to talk about the specific story here, Peter, that he wrote that we've got on Coastal News Today right now. But um, I think that the, real, the, re the reason why we played that and the reason why I think it's important that we highlight uh, what he and other local um, outdoor journalists, outdoor writers that cover the American shoreline in their local community or in, that, in their state community, the regional community, these people serve an incredibly important uh, job on the shoreline of, you know, this guy talks to anglers and, and people who are out there every weekend. Mm -hmm. And he's, he's talking to them about the science of and the biology of the warm. This isn't. He doesn't couch this into like the the normal political dynamic of climate change. This right. is discussed in a different way, and it's accessible, and people read it and they they listen to him, yep. which I think is just so powerful that we have something to be learned from uh, this type of journalism and the way that it, it, it how effective it is. Well, he's doing two really important things. First of all, as a as a as a writer, but as a hunter and a fisherman and someone who is in the community who can talk about his father and his grandfather's experience on the shoreline or as a, or as a hunter and a fisherman, they can tell over time that things can, can be different. So not only are they learning about that, they're communicating that through their writer. He's an outdoor writer on the Houston Chronicle, a great platform, can talk to the community about what he's seeing uh, they come with a level of credibility that is uh, unavailable to those who speak of this in political terms because this is not about politics. This is about the physical world. And like you're saying, they can they can reach out and, and gather from this community of resource users and stakeholders. And it's not just Shannon Tompkins. As you say, there are great outdoor writers all along the American shoreline at lots of great newspapers. And we've got to count on these guys because they're keeping an eye, guys and gals, keeping an eye on 
what's happening. And, and in that video, for the benefit of, you know, we go on, uh, we, we'll have a link on the website, but uh, Carter Smith, the executive director of Parks and Wildlife, was in that clip. Um, yeah, there were a couple other uh, staff members. There was a, a, a colleague of his, another writer from... Uh, I'm not, I don't recall the name of the publication, but it's a, another into uh, not the the Houston Chronicle. But um, you know, obviously, Shannon has won the respect of his colleagues mm-hmm. because he is uh, science minded and he he listens and learns and uh, uh, he. Let's get into this article. I mean, yeah. it's it's evident <clears throat> in what we're going to be talking about here. Well, I think the reason we took time to talk about Shannon in detail here was because of the story that recently came out over the weekend in the Houston Chronicle, uh, climate change and the impacts on the Texas coast, thoroughly researched. I did not know any of this. I, I you know, a general field view is things are a little bit different, you know, things can, the climate's changing. You read this story and Shannon uh, Tompkins is quite flatly clear the changes that he is talking about are directly tied to the effects of climate change. And as he said in the story, we're not here to debate what's causing that. I don't really particularly care what's causing that, but I can tell you that it is different and it is measurable and it's meaningful. So I wanted to highlight, I think what's what I wanted to do, Tyler, was I want us to highlight some of the things he pointed out um, that are happening. And and for those of you in Florida or in Virginia or in Maryland or up in the Chesapeake or over on the West Coast, don't turn it off because it's Texas, because these modifications are happening in their own independent way. We see it all along the American shoreline. The fisheries covers on coastal news today is full of it. And let's talk about one specific. Read, read your outdoor writer. Yeah, read maybe your... maybe you're not a fish, a, an angler. Maybe you're. Mm-hmm. These people are talking about the fish that are actually being caught. You know, there. This is, this is real, up to the date evidence, uh, uh, that chronicles changes that. Like I'm just like with you, Peter. I had no idea this was kind of a theoretical thing. Oh, it's changing. It's really observable here. Yeah, it is, and so. Um, couple of major things. I won't go through all of the story, but a significant loss of salt marshes along the American shoreline has occurred since 1980. There's a variety of factors here. So before we go into gee whiz, well, it must, could be something else. There, what he's talking about is the loss of 20,000 acres, 31 square miles of salt marsh. Now, for those of you in Louisiana, that would happen in a week. Uh, <laughs> I'm exaggerating. But on the Texas coast, it's 20,000 acres, oyster-dominated matrix of wetlands. It was a supercharge. This is a which supercharged the coastal inland fishery. You know, everybody knows in the marine biology world the connection between marsh health and reproduction in fisheries and crabs and, and all kinds of species that are dependent on these nursery marshes systems that exist and that drive the coastal fisheries, of course, and it drives recreational fishing. More than a million anglers in Texas that are coastal fisher uh, men and women, uh, millions of dollars, tens of thousands of jobs. That is starting to change. 20,000 acres of this marsh complex has been lost between 1990 and 2010. And here's the kicker. Over the same time period, the state's coastal estuaries 
for black mangrove fringing communities or habitats has expanded. And what he's talking about here is that the temperature is changing. The, the water, the winter water temperature is not going low enough to kill off the black mangrove. But we all love mangroves. I mean, mangroves are a great habitat, but it is different from a salt marsh habitat, and it has massive ripple effects to the environment and the habitat community. What we're seeing in Texas is an intrusion of tropical plants and animals up into the Texas Basin Marsh Estuary System and the conversion of these habitats, short, these shoreline habitats from salt marsh to black mangrove. And that is a function, as, uh, as he explains, as Shannon Tompkin explains, that is, a, that is a function of the water temperature in the winter, that in, in the old days... Before climate change, before measurable impact in water temperatures were occurring, it would get cold enough with a hard freeze that it would limit the northward extension of these species. And this is both in terms of plant communities, but is also in terms of uh, fish and wildlife species. That's not happening now. So you're getting this mangrove migration north uh, up past the Laguna Madre, where it used to be in Texas, the back, the remnant Black mangroves in the town of South Padre Island are kind of notable. There's not a lot. There used to be kind of a rare thing. But now we're learning that the black mangroves have migrated up through the Laguna Madre, up past Corpus Christi, and have already reached into Galveston Bay. That's a big deal. I mean, it's it's hundreds of miles uh, all the way up, mm-hmm. right? And, yeah. and um, of course, what you're doing is you are substituting one type of habitat for another, yeah. which now means that we are seeing different fish, yeah. different fauna uh, generally. Peter, you were mentioning that there are now manatees. Right. So the, <laughs> you start, I mean, that's incredible. You know, the Texas Parks and Wildlife folks and, and resource managers around the country, I know this is true in Louisiana, all along the Gulf Coast, all around the country, especially in, in fisheries and in mammals, are starting to see these different patterns of uh, species coming into their area. Uh, yeah, to see manatees, which is a subtropical animal, you can find them in Florida because the latitude is far enough south and it's tropical enough, but you don't typically find them in Texas. But they are now. They're being found all along the Texas Cup, all the way up to Galveston Bay. This is a recent phenomenon and is a product of the change in the temperature regime that is dominating on the Texas coast. Uh, manatees, who doesn't love manatees? We all love manatees. Uh, so it's not about something that, uh, although it, it, it is an extension of its range, and I guess, you know, it's hard to, I'm not going to say this is a bad thing. People love these well, things. Well, it, it, it's it, different. That's the key. It's it's the same thing that it, it, it runs into the same management problem that we have everywhere on the American shoreline, which is that Effectively, unless you're talking about Channel Islands National Park or the National Seashore, these are man-managed places. Highly managed. We manage the water that comes in. We manage the sediment that goes on. We manage bulkheading. We control it all. And when, when the environment changes and there's new fish in the fishery, we manage that too. And right. what's interesting is I have here... Uh, my 20, uh, let's see, this is the 2018-2019 Outdoor Manual from 
uh, Texas Parks and Wildlife, and I went to the. It's uh, the hunting fishing guide. This it's is the, the this is the regulatory book you get when you want to go hunting and fishing. Right, you and, get the book, and this tells you everything from you know uh, what fish are you're allowed to uh, uh, take harvest, mm-hmm. uh, how big they have to be, how what your daily limit is. Right, um, and of course, one of the things that Shannon points out in his article is that there's this new. Uh, species of uh, snapper that has come up from Mexico from the warmer waters it's now in our waters and I'm looking at the book and it's not even in here right now to put a species it's, of fish in here is not well before we jump go, in, go ahead go ahead this is the mangrove snapper correct also called the gray snapper right uh, there are no catch limits and there are no bag limits or size restrictions uh, on the. It's on, just not listed in the book. It's not in the book. It's not in there because it has never been part of the Texas. Now, that, yeah, the process, if that were to happen, I mean, it's, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it designating a, a fish, uh, a game fish, and, mm-hmm. and establishing a quota. It is a big process, and and this is a this is a subject that we actually discussed with Robert Jones when he came on ASP. Oh goodness, a couple months ago. Yeah, but it, you know he he used the term. There's a great migration of fish underway. Yeah, they're moving from waters that they once were common in, and they're moving elsewhere because the temperatures have changed, because their food supplies have changed. Right, and our regulatory framework has not in the case of the uh, mangrove snapper has not caught up it's with the existent. snapper it's not existing <laughs> the snapper and, are out running the framework yeah on coastal news today that that issue and for those of you on the eastern seaboard there's been plenty of stories about the transition of the fisheries along the atlantic seaboard and north south uh, of course oriented shoreline where they're seeing incredibly interesting and meaningful changes in the fisheries both in shellfish and in shrimp and in lobster up in Maine, the Bay of Maine's water temperatures change. It is changing the fishery. That means it's changing the landward communities and where those fishermen have to live and work. Uh, it's really complicated, and we're seeing it on the Gulf Coast with mangrove snapper. According to Shannon Tompkins' story, there has been a 20-fold increase in mangrove fish populations on the Texas coast based on the Texas uh, Parks and Wildlife Department's gillnet surveys. In other words, they go out and catch this stuff every year. They count how many of each type there is. They've been doing it every year for 100 years. I don't know, not 100, but 50. A long time. And they can tell that there's new stuff in the net every year, and it's becoming significant and meaningful. And then the regulatory regime that manages coastal fisheries does not exist for this species yet. And as you're saying, Putting that in place isn't simply a matter of getting out a printer and printing off, gee whiz, we'll catch some fish. There's a whole scientific foundation that has to be laid to establish fish quotas and catch limits and all of that stuff uh, that Parks and Wildlife, I'm sure, is working on and will take a number of months, if not years, for years. them to, because, to set that because up. Because the management decision is really where the controversy is because you what what is mm-hmm. asked of say the Galveston Bay Foundation or your advocacy groups is what species do we right. privilege oh what what belongs in this water right uh, this is a non-native fish at least you know it if, kind of ac- is according to Shannon it, it is outside its range it's outside its, its, its historic range. range so you're talking about uh, should our management profile be to accommodate 
yeah. these these new residents of our waters. Right. Or eradicate at the beha- at the but be- that will be at the expense of right fish that used to be here, but maybe are moving elsewhere. I mean, right. it just it 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 complicates. There's a management decision there that is really hard, and it's one that we face everywhere. I mean, this t- push and pull mm-hmm. is like the thing that we do around the shoreline yeah. all the time. But in the case of these you know, quick changes. These are changes that we are, this is why we're covering what's going on in Russia. This is why we're covering all this broad spectrum because folks, stuff moves quickly. It, it might seem like it's a slow pace. These are major decisions. These, these, these fisheries are changing quickly. Uh, you've got to keep your eye on the ball. I mean, it, it's moving it's at quick. a pace that we, that I just don't think we've seen before. We have, and in, in what Shannon pointed out in his article, is that the gray snapper or the mangrove snapper's appearance in the bay systems of Texas on the mid and upper Texas coast has happened in the last decade. It's in the last 10 years. And it's like you say, you can say, well, golly, more fish, that's got to be good. The, the modifications, climate change is habitat change, is economic change, is community change. All of this is linked together. And what we're seeing, for example, in the southern flounder, another species that Shannon highlighted in his story, here is an animal that was highly commercially and recreational important on the Texas coast, where, where there has been a 70% reduction in, these, uh, in the uh, abundance of this species since the early 80s. Shannon explains it. He says, look, this is a species that spawns in the Gulf of Mexico. It goes offshore. The spawning temperature range for the southern flounder is literally, uh, it works between 62 and 64 degrees Fahrenheit. It's a cool water spawning species. And when the water temperatures are not in that range at the right time of the year, what Shannon is explaining is there has been a, a tremendous drop in the reproductive rate of southern flounder. Now that, you know, look, the, we, I'm not here to tell you good, bad about that. What I'm telling you is people count this stuff, they keep track, and it makes a damn difference because these species affect in the hierarchy of the food chain. They have a certain role. It, it, all, it all cascades. It all fits together. And the transformation of these fisheries coincides with all kinds of ripple effects through the, through the food chain and through the habitat. And, uh, you know, there's so much here in this article. Uh, I, it's just you just have to read it. You can find the link to it. You get a snippet of it on Coastal News Today, but it's really the Houston Chronicle. It'll take you right there. Find it on Coastal News Today and read it. Let me just throw out another one. He talks about how the predation rates in are different between mangrove habitats and salt marsh habitats and that the species mix is different and therefore the predation rates for crabs and shrimp and all kinds of stuff is modified. And these are the things that uh, biologists count and track that us as stakeholders and members of the public and people who run a restaurant and people who run a boat dock and people who run fishing charters, uh, you think, well, hell, I don't need to know about all that crap. I just, I'm, just, I'm just here to go fishing. Well, you do need to know about it because... It is the foundation of uh, what brings people to your town. It's what people are used to fishing for, and, and it made. I mean, it's just a big deal. It's a, I don't know. It's a huge deal, and um, again, it's 
it's great journalism like this that tells the story well, that goes into the details, that looks at the research. I mean, he also has anecdotal credibility because he's a he is a an avid angler and you know, you he's writing from a place of love. Yeah. You know. I mean, he's he's not his and experience. And experience. Um it's the kind of content you can you can expect to see on Coastal News today uh and that we think will enrich your uh, career as a coastal professional. If you live on the shoreline, if you work on the shoreline, if you are, if your business is invested in uh, coastal tourism or what have you, mm-hmm. this these are the kind of things that that uh, it's worth keeping your eye on, and no one no one exists, and that's that's what we're providing. Yeah, and you know when you when you step up and you get the thirty thousand foot view. And you look at this story from from Shannon Tompkins about what's going on on the Texas coast, and you go and read the stories on fisheries modifications in the Bay of Maine and what's happening in the clam fishery there and what is happening uh, with the shrimp fishery in Virginia. They issued the first licenses for shrimping, four of them, in Virginia the first time ever because there's suddenly shrimp species that far north. Uh, when you look at what happened with the Pacific Fishery Management Council, this past week, all the fishery management councils were meeting, the Gulf Coast Fishery Management Council, the Pacific and the Atlantic side, and what they're dealing with. Uh, from a resource standpoint, if you step back and you look at all of it together, you start to see this this change and struggle that's going to be happening all along the American shoreline in very different unique ways but that is fundamentally linked together totally you know all those resource managers trying to figure out what the heck we're going to do now there's species here that have never been right you know how do we manage that they don't have the protocols in place um all of this in in terms of fisheries though is robert jones's purview on the neck and the catch curve podcast which will be starting up after the new year um it's another thing where you're like, man, I just, you know, you just wish you were smarter because it's it's so important and there's so much you have to know to really get to the edge of these stories. Uh, I'm, I'm glad we're going to have Robert to take us down that path. Absolutely. Well, uh, thank you, everybody, for uh, listening to the show today. Uh, please remember to subscribe rate and review this podcast and share it with your friends it would mean a great deal to us if you just went on and gave us five stars and a great review or if you (laughs) if you feel we're less deserving you know an honest review is acceptable no matter what you think Uh, yeah apple pods google pods spotify uh sign up share it and please the subscriptions mean something even though they are free not about this is is, uh, this is all free but we need to uh, build our audience numbers that matters for us and uh, so please uh, subscribe to coastal news today and uh, take a journey around the shoreline of America for sure and a dip into the what's happening around the world in the land water interface uh, Because it is a fascinating, fascinating universe to uh, think about every day.